Second John, verse 5. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that, it, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. The apostle is pleading. Do you see how fervent he is? He's literally begging the church, love one another. It's definitely not a suggestion. It's definitely not just, this is something you want to think about. Look at how he is calling to them. Please learn to love one another. This is so important. Isn't this Christ's priority that we love one another? So it's not as though the apostle's plea is misplaced. It's a wonderful priority. It's very appropriate. Jesus said, love God, love people. So he's pleading with the body of Christ to love one another. Look at the end of the verse, walk in it, end of verse 6. This reminds us that love, because we're going to get into commandments and love once again, love is, is not just merely checking boxes. I, I prayed this many times in this place, although we should pray. Love is not just giving. It's not just being generous or giving money, but although we should be giving. It's not as though we say, oh, I prayed, I, I, I was charitable, I, I made a pilgrimage, I, I, I chanted these words. So when we talk about commandments, I, I want you to see that the Lord does command love. And you might ask, can he... Can love be a command? Well, certainly it can. Jesus said the first command, right, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The second is like unto it. So look at what it says about love here. And once again, John ties love to keeping commandments. That if we love the Lord, we're going to live a life that is in keeping with what he tells us is right and good. An obedient life is a loving life. A commandment-keeping life is a loving life towards one another. We learn in 1 Corinthians 13, so many of us can quote it, that love isn't rude, <laughs> that love doesn't keep a record of wrongs, that love is patient, that love is kind. Those are the commands of God, that we shouldn't be rude people, that we should be gentle instead, that we should be patient people because the Lord's been patient with us. So the command is there, but... The plea is to act out of love. Do this from your heart. Walk in it step by step. And oh, how I need this in my life, but each one of us needs the love of God in us for others. Often when, when I'm counseling with a couple before they're to be married, all kinds of stuff comes up. In the first session when they agreed to meet and counsel five times. They say, oh, we know everything about each other. We've talked about everything. And then like just a session or two later, they're crying and saying, we, we never thought of that, right? It's because God word, God's word comes in with his commands and he teaches us, this is what it means to love. And for a husband and a wife to be, that's pretty important, isn't it? We can say that we love each other. That's the cry of First John. We can say that we love. Love flows from our lips pretty easily. Think of all the people you've said, I love you too, and really your love towards them was pretty weak, right? We say love pretty easily, but walking 
in love. Walking in that truth. Look at the end of six. That's what the call is. I remember this one couple, and they were both living in Texas, and they said, we're going to, we knew them, I knew the bride-to-be from when she lived in California. She called me up, and she said, would, would you officiate our, our ceremony? And I said, well, we're going to have, we'll do this distance thing. We'll do counseling over the phone. We'll talk about it or whatever. And so they, I never met the groom-to-be before, and we got to go through the Word of God and, and learn about marriage, which really is, is a picture of us and Jesus. And there were some hard truths. And I remember at one point I asked them, I said, well, I'm going to just mail you um, these, these books. You know? And I said, so what's your address? I asked the groom-to-be, and he told me. And he texted me, and then I asked the bride-to-be, what's your address? And they were the same address. So what did I need to do? Well, if, if I love them, I'm going to talk to them about God's commandments. Now, I didn't, I wasn't accusatory. I just said, I got to ask you guys something. You sent me your addresses, your mailing addresses, so that I could, your street address, so that I could send you some books. I have to ask you, like, are you guys living together? Or, or could I, should I just say, oh, I, I didn't notice. No, love right, keeps commandments. And, and people think, well, no, love is just, I can just, it's free-flowing as far as I can just make it up as I go. I define love, and the Bible says here that that's not the case, that we should love one another, that we should keep his commandments. I was glad to report that, that the groom-to-be said, no, 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 I just, I'm having you send it there because I have a P.O. box, and it's hard to cram all the books in there. I said, okay, good, uh, right? That's, and he said, I'm glad you asked. So number one question, can you love without commitment? Can you love without commandment keeping? And the answer is no. Love involves commitments. Love involves commandment keeping. We think about love in a lot of idealistic ways. Like, I'm loving others, I'm, I'm loving everybody, and I'm practically floating. I'm so fulfilled. I have this sense of God's hand on my life. It's practically effortless. Now, I'm not saying at all that Lord, the Lord doesn't give us the power to love. But many times, the endeavor to love one another is grueling. That's why the apostle needs to tell the church, he pleads with them to love one another. Because it doesn't always feel so good to put others before you. It doesn't always feel so good to pour your life out towards somebody who doesn't seem to care. So love in reality, it's expressed in commitment. Now, I do admit that there are times when we spontaneously love, when, when love is more spur of the moment. Isn't that true? You guys are like, I'm not sure. It is. Sometimes you, you do something, and it's, it's pretty last minute, but it's still an act of love. You see a need, and you feel it, or you realize that somebody's hurting, and, and you seize the opportunity to be there for them. I mean, that's good also. But if we just depend on spur of the moment on, and spontaneous love, is that going to be a complete love? It's not. That's why the Lord gives us commands. This is how to act. This is what to do. And when it comes to commitment, oftentimes we're scared. I don't want to commit to actually being there and getting something done. I don't want to commit because then I'll need to prepare. right? So that's why a lot of times I'm admonishing you, commit. 
and say, you know what? Yeah, this is going to be work. Yeah, and I'll probably be inconvenienced, but it's still love. Would you marry somebody who said, you know, I'm going to love you only spontaneously? And they said, as far as the, the consistency of commitment and love, I'm not much on that. But there's going to be some days when I'm just going to light it up and I'm going to love you, baby, like you've never seen love before. You're like, well, no, I need some step-by-step love. I need some like dime-by-dime, day-by-day, prayer-by-prayer love. Because isn't it true? Love is expressed in, in that commitment. I'm here no matter what. And this is the kind of commitment that we're supposed to have towards each other in the body of Christ, towards our fellow brothers and sisters. Can you love without commitment? No. Well, you can be spontaneous, but you can't have a healthy lifestyle of love without committing to keeping God's commands. Oftentimes, we can start to love in only the ways that we like. Well, I have my clean little lines around the loving that I'm willing to do. These are the hours I will love during. These are the tasks I will do. These are the people I will serve with. And this is just a reminder. Be flexible. Be bendable according to the will of the Lord. Yes, you'll serve according to your spiritual gift much of the time. But still, be ready to to be stretched, to sacrifice, and to commit. I see what the apostle is doing here, and it reminds me of Hebrews and what it says there in Hebrews 4.24. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. So he's stirring up love. And he's stirring up good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. We gather, we serve, we worship, we pray, we, we plan. There's administration, there's, there's readiness to, to be the light that day, that week in the world. Stir each other up to love and good works. Be committed to the love of God, to love one another. Now we get a word from the elder, from the overseer in verse 7. He's watching out for the flock of God. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose things we worked for but that we may receive a full reward. Question number two, how can we identify deceivers? They deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Now, that's not the only false teaching that deceivers promote, but it is definitely one of them, the incarnation of Christ. We sang about it this evening. We've been learning about it for months. Jesus came in the flesh. He came in person. So do you see that repeated emphasis both in 1 John and now here in 2 John on the incarnation of Christ? And Christmas can be used as a reminder of how important the incarnation of Christ is. It can be used to cement that very important truth in our lives. Yes, believing and relying on the incarnation of Jesus, on the truth that Jesus came in person every day of your Christian walk. But Christmas, Christmas is this reminder that God took on flesh. Just the same way that you're to rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus Christ every single day as a believer. And resurrection day is an opportunity to be reminded of the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. Because if he didn't rise again, 
that we don't have any hope. He did rise again. When it comes to the incarnation, let's go back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, where it warns about false teachers. Again, it says, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist that the Antichrist is coming. And even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So this is a passage that also mentions um, the many Antichrists, just like the verse that we're on in Second John. The usage of the word here means against Christ. Now, when it speaks of the Antichrist, that individual, it's instead of Christ. But to say that Jesus didn't come in the flesh is against Jesus himself. To say that Jesus didn't come to earth, born as a baby, lived a life as a man, is against Christ. Now, don't say, who would ever believe that? Who would ever believe that Jesus wouldn't come in the flesh? Instead, Look out for yourself. That's what the Word of God says here. Many so-called New Age belief systems, and they're very into the spiritual realm, say, Jesus, they're not against Jesus, but Jesus is a spirit. They're, they're interested in the spiritual realm. Jesus is a spirit. But if Jesus was just a spirit, then he couldn't have flesh to be crucified in your place. If Jesus was just a spirit, then he, his body wasn't given for you. And I want you to think about this. What did Herod try to do because he was under the influence of the devil? He tried to get rid of the Christ child because he knew that if there was a Christ child, there could be Christ the man who would then lay down his life for the sins of the world, to save his people from their sins. That's the mode of Satan. So Herod was not able to take the life of baby Jesus during that time, but now the Gnostics were getting revved up in the church and spreading the lie that, oh, it, he really wasn't a person. He was just a spirit. And so if a person denies the incarnation, they take this egregious wrong turn, and because of that wrong turn, they'll never reach the cross. They'll never see the cross, and they'll never see the resurrection. So if you don't have the cradle, you can't have the cross. So that's why John is, is defending the truth that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. So how can we identify deceivers? Definitely one way is they deny that Jesus came in the flesh. Verse 7, a great verse for that. We already read verse 8. And I ask you, looking at verse 8, the third question, are you guarding your full reward? Look at verse 8 again that we do not lose the things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward? How do you know this isn't talking about your salvation? How do you know verse 8 is not speaking of your justification, your redemption? You said, well, because you didn't work for your salvation. You were saved by grace through faith, not of works. So it can't be speaking about your salvation. Also, is your salvation a reward? Certainly not, right? Eternal life is a, is a gift of God. So verse 8 isn't talking about your, your salvation. It's not talking about your justification. 
What is it talking about? It's talking about your love for the church, your service to the saints. Look, because deceivers come and they attempt to take what we have worked for. We haven't worked for our salvation, but we have worked to serve the Lord. And have you worked to learn to love one another? Yes. God has grown you. He's, he's stretched you. He's put you into action. And now John admonishes the church. He says, don't lose what you worked for. You were serving. You were learning to love. You were growing. You see, Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He's a thief. That's what I'm focusing on. And he wants to take away from you that which God gave you. He can't steal your salvation from you, but he can keep you from loving, and he can keep you from serving. And that is, is his intention. Let's not lose what we worked for, because we want a full reward. I, I want to stand before the Lord, and so do you, and have him say, well done, good and faithful servant. I, w- I want to serve him with all my heart. I want to have a full reward, a full crown that I can cast at the feet of Jesus and give all glory to him. So don't let the deceivers pull you off course. As God drives you, draws you near to him and he puts believers in your life that are helping you grow in him, you can be guaranteed that the deceiver himself wants to pull you off course. You grow in the Lord. You commit to serve him in, in some concrete way, in a committed way. Do you know who is right there ready to try to make sure that you don't do those things? The deceiver himself. And it's one of the saddest things to see a person and they, they start to grow in the Lord. They, they learn what their gift in the body of Christ is. They're learning to love people. And then just like a, a bird of prey just swoops down. Have you ever seen a bird of prey just grab a, a mouse or a rabbit? It's pretty awesome. Or a, a duck just boom. And Satan will just come right in and say, you know what? I'm going to distract them. I'm going to get them out of fellowship. I'm going to turn them against the people that are praying for them. And so he says, these deceivers are going to come in. Look to yourselves. Guard yourselves. Are you guarding your full reward? Not do you have your guard up in a suspicious way, but do you have your guard up in a way that you realize that there are deceivers that want to keep you from growing in love and growing and keeping the commands of the Lord? Verse 9, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. So look at this. It's talking about doctrine, and oftentimes people say, I'm not really into doctrine. I'm more into things that are practical. And when you look at this verse and many other places in the Bible, that's a misunderstanding of what doctrine really is. To have solid doctrine is to also have solid deeds. And to have corrupt doctrine is actually sin. So if we think, well, that's just a belief system. Well, our belief systems become, they they control our actions. And so doctrine is of the utmost importance. Now, sometimes we might misunderstand and think, well, I don't want to get into just divisive doctrine. Some people like to debate doctrine, and some people don't. But we should be grounded in the doctrine, the teaching of the Word of God, 
because that keeps our lives solid, living for him and holy. We need to know what we believe. Now, there are some people that enjoy talking about doctrine. When I get together with one of my sisters, we just talk about the, I mean, when it comes to doctrine, we're just sitting there, we're mostly on the same page, but we'll talk about doctrine for so long that we end up arguing with each other just over like one little thing. But for us, it's fun. And at the end of the day, we're just like, that was great. We're not, we don't hate each other. Maybe you're not a person like that. You're getting in, you're really thinking, what does the Bible say? How does this work? But doctrine is of great importance because look at what the Bible says about the doctrine of Christ. And it is referring to the doctrine of the incarnation, but there are many doctrines that are connected to Jesus that we cannot sacrifice, that we can't bend on, that we cannot compromise. Because corrupt doctrine, it's sinful, and it leads to what the Bible calls here transgression, right? Whoever transgression, whoever transgresses, who crosses the line, right, from what pleases God into sin, does not abide in the doctrine of Christ. So behavior and belief are closely tied to each other. We can't simply say, well, I, I don't believe what's right, but I do what's right. No, we are to believe that which is good and true, and we're to live in a way that's good and true. Be convinced in your mind of, of what the Word of God says, the doctrines of Christ, the doctrines of, of the totality of the Word of God, and let that keep you from transgression. Let those doctrines keep you abiding in Christ so that you're fastened to Him. That's what verse nine is teaching. So I'd put this fourth question as, do we differentiate between doctrine and deeds? Now I understand there is some diff amount of differentiation, but really doctrine and deeds go hand in hand. Behavior and beliefs go hand in hand. Oftentimes people, when they desire sin and they want to live a lifestyle of sin, their belief system changes, doesn't it? And you ask them, what about the Bible saying this? Oh, I, that's not what it means. Now, before they, when they didn't want to commit that sin, oh yeah, that's what it means, but we, we tend to say, my desires rearrange my views. Have you heard that line before? Famous line from a Jimmy Lee Slowest song. What I want rearranges what I think is right and wrong, right? All of a sudden, I can think something's right if my flesh wants it. So doctrine of Christ leads to a life of holiness, and then question number five, which is in verse 10 and 11, is are we careful to not receive deceivers? Are we careful to not receive deceivers? And look at what it says about how we are to treat those who do not teach the doctrines of Christ, but they teach something contrary to the doctrine of Christ. They go against the incarnation of Jesus, the deity of Christ. There's if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. So the apostle, again, is protective, and he should be, as an elder of the church, as an apostle, Holy Spirit-inspired. He is saying he's being protective of the, of the elect lady of the body of Christ, and he's he is practicing the principle of paying attention. You're vulnerable. Don't even let them in your house. Don't even greet them, which means don't say, 
may the Lord bless you. Why would you say that to a deceiver? It just kind of flows out of your mouth right now. I mean, you don't want to tell them, have a bad day instead of have a good day. But you don't want to bless them in their endeavor to deceive people. And when you know that a person is out to be deceptive, that they have an agenda of deception that is against the word of God, we must be careful that we're not so intent upon saving the wolf that we invite him into our home and give him a foothold. And this is what happens with people. They say, well, I, 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 I want to see him saved. And God wants to see him saved too. But if they're up to no good and they're spreading false doctrine, don't give them that foothold in your house. And some say this refers to teachers coming from town to town and saying that they're, they're here to share the word of God and there weren't hotels in those days. So instead of staying at the Holiday Inn or, the, or Best Western, they would stay in people's houses. And they would say, like, don't let somebody come in who says they're a preacher, an evangelist, a teacher, a pastor. Don't let them stay in your house. Keep them out. Um, I take this literally. I talk to people who are members of cults on my front porch. And I'm, I say, yeah, you want a glass of water? You want a muffin? But I don't let them in my house. I just don't do it that way. Um, because I'm like, I, I want to make sure, when I know that that's what they're up to, but I'm, I'm going to chip away. But a lot of times our intention of like, I, I want to see this, this person saved. Yes, pray for them, but also realize that you cannot have fellowship with someone that you're not like-minded with. You can't have koinonia with, with a person that doesn't understand the, the lordship of Jesus Christ, the deity of Christ. And a lot of times when a person is saying a lot of Bible words and act, acting very fervent, you're thinking, they're just like me. Until you, you realize, no, no, they're not. The Jesus that they're preaching, the Jesus that they're spreading is not the Jesus that I'm serving. And I don't want to join with them in that. Um, I'm praying, I'm the one praying. I, I, just take the, I just take the steering wheel, just give me that, right? I said, I want to pray for you. I'll do that. But I'm just like, hey, do you, you want to pray? I'll ask them if they want to pray to repent. But it's not on their turf. Don't let them spread their deception. That's the message of 10 and 11, verses 10 and 11. Finally, the last two verses. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak, come to you and speak face to face that your joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Last of all, is your joy connected to the church? From your multiple choice quiz question, you see that in this book and in the next book, joy is connected to each other. Do you think of it that way? Or do you think of joy as being something really personal, like personal satisfaction or personal delight. Well, the Bible says that a lot of our joy, we have joy in the Lord, comes from each other and our fellowship with each other and this unsurpassed joy that we have when we see brothers and sisters walking in the truth. But now here what it says is that there's this great joy in being able to see one another, in being able to be face to face, in being able to be in fellowship with each other. Your joy is connected to one another. This is a truth that we must come to terms with. The lie is that joy is to put yourself first, isn't it? Like, joy is something very individual, and if you get off on your own, 
you'll, you'll find this personal satisfaction. The Bible says if we don't get outside of ourselves and learn that it's about Jesus and others way before it's about us, then we're not really going to know joy. 1951, B. Medzger wrote the song that says, Jesus and others and you. What a wonderful way to spell joy. Jesus and others and you. In the life of each girl and boy. Kids song, but really, we're children of the Lord, aren't we? J is for Jesus, for he has first place. O is for others you meet face to face. There's the face to face from verse 12, isn't it? Y is for you in whatever you do. Put yourself third and spell joy. You're hearing it in the church, outside the church, from your flesh. You put the Y first. (laughs) You put self first. That's how you're going to have real satisfaction, real happiness. The Word of God says, no, it's the Lord. And it's not just you and Jesus. Others are right in the middle of that. That's hard for us. It's very hard for us. Follow a life that doesn't invest in people. I just saw a previous coworker a few months ago, and, and he's the kind of person that's never had time for other people. I'm, I'm not going to invest my life in, in, in people. I, I don't care much about family. I don't care. I, I'm, now he's retired. And now that he doesn't need to work for money, he doesn't have anything to live for. It's terrible to see it. Does he have enough money to live until he's 100 comfortably? Yes. Does he have joy? No. Because he hasn't put his life into people. It was too messy. It was too hard. It was too inconvenient. It required commitment. People, people are, they cause me trouble. They encumber me, right? And I want, we're supposed to lead a quiet life, but I take that verse to extreme sometimes, right? <laughs> Work with your hands, lead a quiet life, mind your own business. Okay, Lord. <laughs> but he's not involved in people's lives. And then to see the end of a life like that, some would say, is that success? Well, you're educated. You have plenty of money. You're talented. But because the Lord isn't the Lord of your life and because others haven't been, like what do you have at the end of the day if you haven't invested in people? To see people at the end of their life just lonely because they haven't poured in when they had the vitality, spend it now, right? That's what the Lord is saying to me and you. Like, I know it's, it's hard and, and I know it doesn't fit. You know, as we get older, we have I say we because I think it's most of us. We just get more and more particular about the way we like things and, you know, the time we go to bed, what time we drink our tea and, you know, how we put our bathrobe on. It's like, man, this is getting kind of scary. And we can't be inconvenienced to love anymore, right? That's the great thing about kids. They're, so, they're such an inconvenience that you kind of forget. Like, I'm just supposed to love them, right? They're just little and snotty and stinky. They, they're not organized. They're not efficient, I'm just pouring my life into them. I got to, and then love God's kids the same way because they're just like the little kids, right? It's not, it's not neat. It's not tidy. I'm not making excuses for sin, but love. And look at here, it's church to church in verse 13. One sister greeting another sister, whether it's two ladies that are chosen by the Lord or it's two churches chosen by the Lord. How often did Paul send greetings from one 
body to another. And it's individual to individual. The apostle loving that church, loving that lady in truth. This is the joy. Look, look at it. People that pour their lives out, people that commit, people that love, they have joy, don't they? They don't always have money. They're not always cute. They're not always fit. They're not always you know, popular, but, but they have joy, unspeakable joy. Lord Jesus, you walked this earth and you showed us how to, how to notice people that other, others didn't. You walked this earth and, and you were right in there, like hands-on, serving, and so full of mercy. The outcasts were not far from you. You, you went after them. The, those who were considered untouchable, those who were looked down on, you were right there with them, Lord. And you were always looking for ways to love, love in truth, to walk in the truth, and we want to be like you. And when even a ruler would come and humble himself, you would you love them, Lord. So I, I pray for us to understand where the joy comes from. I pray you'd help us to, if we need to shed our tidy lives so that we can have the joy of the Lord, let, let it be so. Uh, bless this food as we eat and bless our fellowship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.